0: One of the popular genres of literature has always been horror. This fascination has found its way into radio and television and big screen movies. The, ro- the result has been that in order to shock and scare readers or listeners or viewers, the industry has to come up with more and more shocking or horrifying scenes. But regardless of what scenarios are created, no one can come up with a more shocking and horrifying scenario than the one Jesus described near the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus described people who will think they are going to heaven only to find out that they are banished From his presence for eternity. Now, it's one thing to end up in hell when you know you are going there, and there are people like that. There are people in society who have no interest in going to heaven and they know they aren't going to end up there. They have no idea how horrible and torturous hell is going to be, but they know they aren't going to heaven. But it's another thing to end up in hell when you thought you were going to heaven. Jesus described people like that in Matthew chapter 7. Let's turn there by way of introduction this morning to the text we'll consider in our series through Galatians. But to begin with, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. In verses 13 through 23, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount concludes with a point of application or a call to a decision. Jesus says there are two gates, the narrow and the wide. There are two ways, the confined and the broad. There are two destinations, life and destruction. There are two groups, the few And the many. There are two kinds of prophets, true prophets and false prophets. There are two kinds of trees, the good and the bad, which produce two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. There are two kinds of people who say, Lord, Lord, the genuine believer and the false disciple. There are two kinds of builders, the wise and the foolish. There are two kinds of foundation, the rock and the sand. There are two kinds of houses, the firm and the unstable. You can see from all of these examples and illustrations that Jesus is calling for a decision. He gave his invitation, if you will, in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 7, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult or confined is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. That was our Lord's invitation. He exhorts people to enter the narrow gate... And he invites them to walk down the narrow road to life. You see, many people wrongly believe, many church people wrongly believe and think that there are numerous paths to salvation. They think the road to heaven is very broad. Jesus said, however, that it is the road to destruction that is very broad. It is so broad that it encompasses many philosophies. It is so broad that it encompasses many lifestyles and many belief systems. It is so broad that it encompasses all religions that teach salvation by works and righteous deeds. It includes the self-help theories and the atheistic theories and the New Age beliefs and the non-Christian religions and even the Christian religions that have become empty shells of dead orthodoxy and ritualism. The road to destruction, says Jesus, is very, very broad. But here's the scary part. Many people who are on the broad road to destruction believe they are on the path of salvation. That's what Jesus is warning about here In Matthew 7. He is, understand this, He is not warning people who have no interest in salvation or no interest in heaven. He is warning the many people who think they're on the right road, but they're on the wrong road. And then the many from verse 13 end up down in verses 22 and 23. Where Jesus says in verse 22, Many, there's the same word, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, the many who are mentioned in verse 13 are people who believe they are on the path of salvation. But when they get to the judgment, they will be shocked to find out that they were on the wrong road all along. So throughout this sermon, Jesus pointed people to the true path of salvation and righteousness, and then he closes the message with a call to true faith and salvation. He says in verse 13, "...enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction." And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and confined is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beloved, do you hear what Jesus is saying in these verses? There are few who find the way of life. I'm not sure we really believe that. We want to believe that many, many people in our world are going to heaven. This viewpoint comes across in the oft-repeated statement, when we get to heaven, we are going to be surprised at who is there. That may be the case in some rare instances. But based on what Jesus says here, I think it would be more accurate to say, when we get to heaven, we are going to be surprised at who is not there. Now, I don't say that To create a judgmental attitude in any of us because that would clearly be wrong. But I say that because we need to take seriously what Jesus said. He said, Many go down the broad road to destruction, and few go down the narrow road to life. And again, I emphasize the many that Jesus is referring to in these verses are not irreligious people. He's not even talking about irreligious people in this sermon. He is talking about religious people. They're the ones who make up the many who are on the broad road to destruction, and they're the ones who are going to be shocked when they stand before the judgment bar of Christ. This is very difficult for people to accept in our society, and frankly, very difficult for people to accept even within the church. It's very difficult for people to accept the fact that huge masses of religious people are not going to make it to heaven. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult for people to really accept that fact is because there are so many religious leaders and religious teachers who send the opposite message. Jesus warned about that also. In verse 15 he says... Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Sheep's clothing was that which was worn by true shepherds, true spiritual leaders. So the warning that Jesus gives here is that many people who look like true spiritual leaders are not really true spiritual leaders. They may have the position They may dress the part, they may use the language, they may be called reverend or father. So it would be easy to assume that they are true spiritual leaders, when in reality they are false prophets. Beloved, don't ever forget that false prophets do not walk about with a sign hanging around their necks that reads, I am a false prophet. If it were obvious that they were false prophets, they would have little to no following. It isn't obvious that they are false prophets. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. It isn't obvious. They have the look. They have the talk. They have the position. They have the respect. And that's what makes them so dangerous. As difficult as it is to believe, there are many religious leaders who are spiritually destitute. They have no, absolutely no relationship with Christ. That is what Jesus is warning about here at the end of his message. There are many people who are on the broad road to destruction, and one of the reasons why is because there are so many false prophets in religion who assure people that they are on the right road and that they're going to be fine. These false prophets tell people things like this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It doesn't matter what religion you're in as long as you are serious about it. If you've been baptized, you'll be fine. You'll be okay if you've gone through the the five rituals of our church. Or if you're in this particular religion, you'll automatically make it. Just be faithful in attending our services, our functions, and you'll be fine. Just try to be a good person, and everything will turn out all right. Just make sure that your good outweighs your bad. If you haven't done anything wrong that is really bad, such as murder or rape, then you'll be fine. Even if you haven't repented of your sins and received Christ, God is merciful. God is love, and He'll probably let you into heaven anyway. These and many other similar kinds of assurances are spouted by the false prophets that continue to send people down the broad road to destruction. And when these people end up at the judgment bar of Christ, they are going to be shocked beyond words. In verse 22, Jesus says, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice the phrase, I never knew you. We never had any relationship. It was all self-righteousness, works righteousness, religious ritual, without any genuine relationship with Christ. Does this describe you? Are you one of those who is on the broad road to destruction, but you think you're on the narrow road to life? Jesus has exhorted people to enter the narrow gate. That's verses 13 and 14. He has warned about the false prophets who send people down the religious and broad road to destruction. That's verses 15 to 20. Now he describes the shocking judgment that will be experienced by all these religious people who travel down the broad road. He says in verse 22 Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? The scariest part of this entire text is the first word of this verse. The word many. If the word were some, that would be bad enough. If it were only some people who will end up experiencing this, or a few people who would experience this, that would still be tragic. Beyond tragic. But Jesus said it will be many. Many people will be shocked at what they are going to hear when they stand before Jesus. Many people are going to be stunned when they find out that their religious deeds don't cut it they're going to say but Lord Lord what about all this religious stuff that we have done and Jesus will say I never knew you depart from me as I said earlier it's one thing to approach the judgment bar of Christ expecting or knowing that you aren't going to be accepted into heaven it's another thing to assume you're okay only to find out that you're going to be banished from heaven for eternity. In other words, some people are headed to destruction and they know it. I've had conversations with people like this on many occasions. That they, they aren't going to be surprised when they are condemned. Now, they are going to be in horror because it's going to be worse than they can imagine. But they aren't going to be surprised in the sense that they knew all along That they were not even interested in heaven. They weren't interested in trying to get to heaven. But the people that Jesus describes in these verses are going to be shocked that they didn't make it. They assumed they were in. They assumed they were good to go. They were fine. And let me emphasize again that Jesus said many. Many people are going to be stunned come Judgment Day when they hear words they never dreamed they would hear. Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, being a Christian is not trying to keep the Ten Commandments It is not trying to live by the golden rule. It is not trying to be a good neighbor. It is not trying to be as religious as you can. Being a Christian is knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is receiving Him into your very life so that you come to know Him. That's why 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. In Philippians 3.8, Paul described what it means to be a Christian when he said, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In John 17.3, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. First John 5, 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Being a Christian is knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is receiving Him into your very life So that you come to know Him. And if you are trying to earn your salvation by any other means, that is a wicked thing. And that is not stating it too strongly. It is a wicked thing to try to earn salvation through works and religion when Jesus gave His very life to provide salvation. It's as if you are just dismissing his death. You are minimizing his death, trivializing his death by saying, that's not the issue, it's my works, it's my religion, it's my righteousness that will get it done. Nothing could be more wicked. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. It is a wicked thing to try to earn salvation through works and religion when Jesus gave his precious blood to provide for salvation. That's why the last phrase of verse 23 says, You who practice lawlessness. Jesus is not saying that all who will be sent away from him are the vile and corrupt and debased and obscene and maliciously sinful. Remember, he is addressing people who are holding up all their religious deeds and religious works and religious credentials. So he's not saying that all these people are the most despicable and evil people in society. No. He is saying that anyone who doesn't trust him for salvation is wicked, whether moral or immoral whether ethical or unethical, whether high-principled or reprehensible. Your eternal destiny depends on your relationship with and to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that basic. And that is why the Apostle Paul wrote the letter called Galatians. If you are wondering why he wrote such a long and strong letter defending the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this is why. What we've just read here in Matthew 7. This is why. Because there are going to be people who will someday stand before Jesus to hold up their works for salvation, and they will be sent away from him forever. And that is what motivated or part of what motivated Paul to write the letter called Galatians. With that in mind, let's turn again to Galatians chapter 1 as we continue our series through that letter written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 1. Please follow along as I read verses 11 through 24, some of which we Covered last week, but this entire unit needs to sort of stay together for us to understand what Paul is saying here. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh And blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except, except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the very faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. As we saw last week, Paul is very... Personal in this section of his letter to the Galatians. You can see that just from reading through it once again. He does this because the group that was troubling the Galatians was seeking to discredit Paul and his message. Paul's message was that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a group called the Judaizers came along and said that salvation also involves keeping the law of Moses from the Old Testament, and especially, if you're male, the commandment of circumcision. Now understand, they could sound very convincing. Because they could say that their message came right out of the Word of God as revealed in the Old Testament. It came right out of Hebrew Scripture. Remember, there was no New Testament at this point. So Paul couldn't turn to the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians to prove and defend his point. Therefore, it's very likely that the Judaizers accused Paul of simply making up his gospel message. That's why Paul wrote this section of the letter. He wanted to make it clear that the gospel that was being propagated by the Judaizers was no gospel at all, And that his gospel wasn't one he invented. It was given to him directly by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't receive it from man, and he wasn't taught it by man. He didn't even receive it from an angel. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So after denouncing the supposed gospel that was being propagated by the Judaizers, which is what Paul does in verses 7 through 9, he explains that he got his message through divine revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul's gospel message came directly from Jesus Christ, and Paul received that message after he'd spent time trying to destroy it earlier in his life. Furthermore, when Paul was saved, and commissioned by the Lord, he didn't go to Jerusalem to be affirmed or instructed by the other apostles. And his point in saying all of this was not to put down the other apostles, but to emphasize that he didn't get his gospel message from men, even from the other apostles, as important as they were. He got his message directly from Jesus Christ himself. He didn't go to Jerusalem to learn what to preach. He didn't go to Jerusalem to learn what to teach. He wasn't instructed by the other apostles. He was instructed by the Lord Jesus during his time in Arabia. So to say it very plainly, Jesus gave Paul his message. Jesus gave Paul his doctrine, his theology, his gospel. And once Paul was ready to begin proclaiming that message, he went back to Damascus and began ministering there. He didn't go to Jerusalem, to the other apostles, to make sure that he had the right gospel message because he didn't need to get confirmation from those godly men. He knew that his gospel was not a human gospel because he had received it directly from Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Or your translation may say Cephas, which is another name, of course, for Peter. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. This is an amazing statement when you think about it in the context of the first century. Jerusalem was the hub Jerusalem was the capital of Christianity. That's where the church was born on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts 2. Yet, think about this. Think about this statement. Paul did not go there for three years after he'd become a Christian. Three years. And it wasn't that far away. Because Paul was already there, right there in the Middle East. Right there in the region. He could have easily made a trip to Jerusalem. After all, he had been there in Acts 8 when Stephen was martyred, and he left there to go persecute believers in Damascus. So he could have returned there, but he saw no need to go back there. He didn't need to be instructed by the other apostles because he knew he already had the right message since it had come directly from the Lord himself. So Paul didn't go to Jerusalem until three years after his conversion. And that's when he got acquainted with Peter. He stayed there about two weeks, visiting with Peter, but he didn't interact with any of the other apostles. He says in verse 19, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. The James mentioned here in this verse is not James, the son of Zebedee and brother of John, both of whom were apostles, both of whom were fishermen in their father's business, etc. Jesus called them when he was walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. That's not this James. This James was the half-brother of Jesus who was converted after the resurrection of Jesus. He eventually became one of the key leaders in the Jewish church in Jerusalem. We see that in Acts 15, Acts 21, several passages. So when Paul eventually went to Jerusalem to make contact with the leaders there, he only spent time with two of them, Peter and James. His point is that he didn't spend a lot of time there, and he didn't interact with a lot of the other apostles. He didn't interact with... James and John and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and just Matthew. Go down the list. He didn't interact with them. Therefore, here's his point. He didn't get his message from them. He didn't get his commissioning from them. He got his message and his commissioning directly from Jesus himself. That claim could easily sound prideful and arrogant or even dishonest. That's why Paul made the next statement, verse 20. He says, Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. It's very likely that the Judaizers accused Paul of being a liar, which would explain why he made such a strong statement here. He affirms before God, he's telling the truth about this. All of this is accurate. Verse 21, he says, Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. The region of Syria was where the town of Antioch was located, which eventually became the launching pad for Paul's missionary journeys. Cilicia was where Paul's hometown of Tarsus was located. So Paul eventually went back to his hometown to his hometown region to tell about what had happened to him and to share his message. Verse 22, he says this, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. Judea is the southern part of Israel where the capital city of Jerusalem is located. And notice what Paul says here. It's quite a remarkable statement. The believers there in Judea couldn't even recognize Paul by face. And that was because he didn't spend any time there. And remember his point. He is rehearsing all of this history to make the point that he didn't get his message and he didn't get his commissioning from the other apostles or, frankly, from any human source. He got his message and his commissioning directly from Jesus Christ himself. He didn't get it from the hub. He didn't get it from the capital. He didn't get it from the mother church because he didn't even spend enough time there to be known by the believers. They wouldn't have even recognized Paul if they met him on the street because he spent no time there. He says in verse 23, but they were hearing only. In other words, they didn't see me. I didn't go there, spend a lot of time with them. The only thing they knew about me is what they were hearing about me. And here's what they were hearing. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. So Paul was known in Judea by reputation, but not by face. He wasn't known by face because he barely spent any time in Judea after he had become a Christian, which means that he couldn't have received his message and his commissioning from the other apostles. However, even though he didn't receive his message from the other apostles, they did agree with his message. That's the significance of the next verse, verse 24. He says, and they glorified God in me. The fact that the other apostles and believers in Judea praised God or glorified God because of Paul, was proof that the message Paul preached was the same message the other apostles had proclaimed to the Judean believers. This was an important point for Paul to make because it could have been easy for the Judaizers to say, Listen... Paul is going out there in the Roman world, the Gentile world, and he's preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that's not what the other apostles are preaching down in, in Jerusalem and in Judea. They're also emphasizing the, the Mosaic law and circumcision. So Paul makes the point, no, no, they glorified God in me. They, we have the same message. No contradiction. Their gospel and Paul's gospel was the same gospel because there is only one gospel. There is only one message of good news. And that is the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because that message is so important, and because it was under such attack by the Judaizers... Paul goes into great detail here in this section to prove that he didn't receive his message from any human source or even an angelic source. Paul's gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, came directly from Jesus himself. And that is the only message that saves. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ, listen to this. Salvation by faith in Christ, by grace through faith in Christ plus anything, is no gospel message. It's no gospel message. When people say salvation is by grace through faith in Christ plus, and then they add the plus, that's no gospel at all. That's no good news. In fact, It will result in people standing before Jesus and saying, Lord, Lord, look at what we've done for you. To which Jesus will reply, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's why this is so important. It is eternally important. So, what are you? Listen to this question. What are you trusting in for your eternal destiny? Are you trusting in your church membership or your baptism or your good deeds or your keeping of the Ten Commandments or something along those lines? If so, do what Paul did in Philippians 3. He said he took all those kinds of things and he dumped them. In their place he put one thing, Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Do you know Christ? Or are you going to be like one of those in Matthew 7 saying, Lord, Lord, look at what I bring to the table. Only to hear Him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Don't be one of the many that Jesus warned about. Let's bow together in closing. And obviously, a text like this, a message like this, is so eternally important, so crucial. And therefore, we can't just close our Bibles and walk out of here and say, oh, good church service, good sermon. No. No, after hearing what Jesus had to say in Matthew 7 and hearing Paul argue so vehemently that his gospel did not come from man, it was not of human origin, it behooves us, it compels us to just stop and ask the question, what am I trusting in for my eternal destiny? Am I trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Or am I thinking that I bring something to the table? I want to contribute in some way. I want to make sure I get in, so I'm going to also add my things. I'm going to plus, Jesus plus, all these other things. Be like Paul in Philippians 3. Dump all the other things. And in their place, hold on to one thing knowing christ do you know christ if you don't or if there's any doubt in your mind then turn to him today don't let your pride hold you back turn to christ and call on him just say from your heart lord jesus i want to belong to you I don't want to trust in anything in me, anything in religion. I want to trust in Christ and Christ alone. I can promise you he will hear a prayer like that. Gladly. A prayer from a broken and contrite heart. A humble heart that wants to trash all trust in human effort and human merit. And put all trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Father, thank you for the gospel. Indeed, it is good news to know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not Christ plus our own good works. It is not Christ plus our own religious deeds It is Christ and Christ alone. May our understanding of the gospel strip us from any trust in human merit. May our understanding of the gospel humble us so that we recognize that we bring nothing to the table. May our understanding of the gospel cause us to rejoice not in our own good deeds but in Christ and Christ alone. And Father, we would pray in closing this morning that if there is anyone hearing these words right now who, as it stands now, is numbered among the many who will someday say to Jesus, but Lord, Lord, look, look at all of these things, only to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. If there, are, if there are any who are in that category hearing these words now, may your Holy Spirit do whatever it takes To draw that man or woman away from self, away from religion, away from self-trust, to look to Christ and Christ alone. Do that work of grace in their hearts. And do a work of grace in all of our hearts that we would glory. We would glory in your grace knowing that it's all by grace. And that is the only way we can be saved. We lift these prayer requests before you in the precious and matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.